0: Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever, and I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. We come to a topical sermon on the
1: topic of guidance. Let me lead us briefly in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks. You speak in your word and by the power of your spirit at work within and amongst us. Please help us, Father, to uh, meditate on your word in such a way that uh, brings glory and honour to Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Friends, once upon a time, I was part of an interview panel for employing a scripture coordinator. One of the questions that we asked each of the four candidates was, how does God guide us today? And I remember one of the candidates answering with, well, you know, it's like a rock in your shoe. The idea was that God lets you know that you need to attend to something in a perhaps vague or subtle way. Uh, Perhaps you want to make a certain choice or think a certain way, but God is making those steps uncomfortable by putting the figurative rock in your shoe, so you're forced to contend with how he's making you think or feel, and presumably that would have some kind of impact on your direction. Three of the four candidates interviewed that day basically had a similar rock-in-your-shoe kind of answer, uh, which is possibly why none of those three actually ended up getting the position. But it goes to show that when it comes to the topic of guidance, God's people can have all sorts of half-baked ideas along with, frankly, full-baked confusion. When it comes to making a big decision, sometimes we hear Christians say, I've prayed about it, as if that somehow indicates that the course of action eventually taken must therefore be right. Sometimes, as Christians, we can be easily guilty of making significant decisions without factoring in God whatsoever. One minute we'll gladly affirm that God is sovereign and in control of all things, and yet the next minute we relegate him to the realm of the spiritual things whilst we get on with life in the secular sphere all by ourselves. Similarly, we can easily misapply the reality of God's sovereignty by thinking that every single decision is of equally profound importance such that we end up with this paralyzing anxiety about something as trivial as to what brand of toothpaste I should buy this week or something like that. Again, it's not uncommon for Christians to believe that God had a certain path in mind for me But because of my sin and my failure to listen to him properly or something, I'm now stuck with the second best or the third best, the less ideal life than the one God originally had mapped out for me. Now, like most topics that the word of God brings up, and this is a big one in the Bible, there's far more than we can consider in the space of just one sermon. So to get rid of the rock in our shoe when it comes to the issue of guidance, This morning I'm giving what I've just called a crash course on guidance. I've chosen what I'm confident are at least the four major points to understand from the Word of God when it comes to the topic of guidance. The first thing we need to have set in stone is the destination to which God is taking his people. And uh, the juvenile Ben in me loves this picture because it looks like we're all headed to a mighty guitar pick. That's kind of like the destiny. Uh, friends, history has a direction. The acorn moves toward becoming a tree. The baby moves toward becoming an adult. The very hungry caterpillar moves on its way to becoming the butterfly. Uh, note to self, do not insert unfair joke about a certain NRL team that Gavin likes moving to the bottom of the ladder. Oh, sorry, I wasn't sorry. <laughs> um, Anyway, whilst the observable world gives us some sense that there's an end point, thankfully, for those that he has chosen, God has revealed definitively where all history is heading. We see it in Ephesians chapter 1. Here it is. He, that is God, made known the mystery, literally the secret, of his will according to his good pleasure, Which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment. In other words, the end. What is it? Well, here it is. It is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, all things are on their way to being summed up. It's actually an economic term in the original. Summed up under the rule of Jesus. All things will be properly aligned under the lordship of Christ. That is the goal to which all history is moving. Uh, We see it again in Colossians, for example, where Paul writes that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is in Jesus, the fullness of God is in, in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Uh, Now, when a business manager reconciles the accounts, some are found to be in profit, some are found to be in loss, but they're all reconciled, they're all sort of sorted out, if you know what I mean. And so it is with Jesus. All people, one day, will be fully and finally under the rule of Christ. For those who are already under his lordship, Spiritually, that is for Christians, that will be wonderful. That'll be the most wonderful day ever. For those who remain in rebellion against Jesus, it will be terrible. But in either case, all people will be literally reconciled to the Lordship of Jesus. And not just all people, but did you notice, all things. So it comes as no surprise that in yet another place from the New Testament, we learn about the goal of history that. Creation itself is specified. Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope, and in this context that means in a certain hope, because it's God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The truth... That all people and all things are all on their way to being summed up under the perfect rule of Jesus is what God has revealed to us over and over in his word. Now, if God is moving us toward living under Jesus' perfect rule in eternity, well, then it makes sense that he takes us, his people, through a process in which our thoughts and words and deeds are increasingly aligned with Jesus' rule. Our future reality is that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory, which is why it is the case that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, who we will... Appear with in glory. Because we're heading toward perfectly living under the rule of Jesus, the good that God is doing for those who love Him is to conform us into the image, into the likeness of Jesus, under whose rule we'll live for all eternity. And it's for this reason, by the way, that suffering can also fall under the category of the good that God is working for his people. See, from what I unashamedly plug, which you'll know now, as the best book outside of the Bible ever written on the topic of guidance, namely Philip Jensen and Tony Payne's Guidance and the Voice of God, to say, quote, that God works in everything for our good does not mean that he will remove all pain and suffering from our path. On the contrary, if becoming like Christ is the good that God is working for, then pain and suffering will almost certainly come our way. And through that pain and suffering, God will work in his sovereign way to mould us into the shape of Jesus. That's the big picture. That's the destination for all things to be summed up under the Lordship of Jesus in eternity. And for Christians, that means God is in the process of moulding us into Christ's likeness. That's the direction, if you like, the big direction of God's guidance. The second big point to grasp is that there are actually requirements that need to be met in order for us to receive God's guidance. This one's relatively easy because there are only two things that are ever acquired from us. They're the very things by which we initially come into a saving relationship with Jesus, and they're the things by which we continue to live our lives under his rule. Those things, of course, are repentance and faith. Uh, we'll start with faith. Faith is an, one of those really unfortunate religious sounding words. It's this mystical, amazing, you have this wonderful faith, like it's this substance that's in you or something like that. Uh, But in reality, it is just a plain, normal, everyday concept. Uh, It means trust or rely or depend. You could find every instance of the word faith in your New Testament, cross it out and just write trust, and it means exactly the same thing. I trust, for example, that my desk chair is strong enough to hold my weight. And you know that I trust that because I continue to sit in it when I'm in the office. Uh, it, it's not some blind leap in the dark. You know, I've sat in that chair before and it looks strong enough. It's based on evidence. I, my trust is, is a rational, normal thing. That's what faith is. If we trust that God has made us fit for eternity, well, then it's sort of natural that we will follow his guiding if you don't trust the person you're not going you got to really a guy rocks up in the uber or the taxi absolutely stoned and drunk off his face kind of thing you think I, i'm not going to trust this person to drive i'm not getting in the car that, that's how it is now sure our faith our trust in god can and will be shaky at times but he god himself always only ever remains trustworthy So overall, we actually will follow his guiding. If we don't trust God, then no matter how much guidance he might give, we're just naturally not going to take it. Same goes for repentance. Uh, Repentance means a deliberate change of direction and behaviour. And it means that in an ongoing way. Uh, Great illustration, you might not have thought of this, great illustration for repentance is, would you believe, marriage. You see, quite literally, a man and a woman agree that they'll no longer live as singles. They repent of their singleness when they get married. They change their behaviour and their direction they are going to live together now instead of living separately. They make these promises that that's the change, what, what it's going to look like. They make the promises on their wedding day, they go on a honeymoon, they set up home together. There are all sorts of emotions that are involved in that process, but that has nothing to do with the fact that they've made this initial decision to live as husband and wife, and therefore they will continue to operate within that sphere. It'll be unthinkable they'll get back from the honeymoon and look at each other and go, now, are we husband and wife? Let's try and work it out. It doesn't occur. Now, often husbands and wives, very often husbands and wives, will fail to live in accordance with their marriage vows, but if they genuinely stand by their decision, they'll correct the errors and continue in their new direction. And so it is with us and God, who incidentally, Jesus is he's, uh, the, the bridegroom and the church is his bride. We initially repent, we change. I'm not living for me anymore, I'm living under the lordship of Jesus. And therefore we continue in that path of repentance. That is, we continue to live under his rule. And this is important because genuine initial and ongoing repentance is actually a requirement for receiving God's guidance. Again... Jensen and Payne say it far better than I could, so here's another spot-on quote from them. There are many people who would like to identify themselves as Christians, but are not willing to forego their old manner of life. Now, to some extent, we all carry with us vestiges of our pre-Christian past, but for some people there is not even the willingness to change. They are satisfied with the emotional experience of having heard the gospel and felt sorry for their past, but they have no desire to turn around and lead a new life. There is no repentance. These people will receive no guidance from God. When he calls them to go a certain way and they don't like it, they will refuse or ignore it or find some way of avoiding the issue. Guidance only comes to the humble, to those who sorrow over their sin, yes, and are prepared to listen and change, that is, repent. So both initial and ongoing faith and initial and ongoing repentance are necessary requirements for receiving guidance from God the super short and simple way to say this is basically you've got to be a follower of Jesus in order to receive God's guidance and that brings us to the third important thing to understand on the topic of guidance namely the character by which God's guidance happens in our lives now for this one I make our rector, John O Squire, happy because I've thought of two memorable terms, and when I say thought of I mean stolen, two memorable terms that uh, use alliteration. When it comes to the guidance of God, he guides by A, passive participation and B, conscious cooperation. God guides us both in our passive participation in, in his plans as well as our conscious cooperation with what he has revealed. Uh, We'll start with the first one. God is absolutely sovereign and in control of all things. Not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will. And he monitors even the number of hairs on our heads, which in my case is a decreasing number. So all people are involved in passive participation in the grand plans of God, hear it from the word of Proverbs 16.9. In their hearts, humans plan their course. But the Lord establishes their steps. Again, 21.1. In the Lord's hands, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. And again, Psalm 121. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. In fact... When we do sinful and ungodly things, even then God is still sovereignly guiding us toward our destination. Uh, In Genesis chapter 50, you remember the story of Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery, but years later, now powerful as a ruler in Egypt, he confronts them and he said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Their ungodliness does not remove them from the sovereign plan and rule of God. He uses their ungodliness to accomplish his plans. The same applies to the death of Jesus, in which he, of course, bore the penalty for all our sin and ungodliness. Acts chapter 2. This man, that's Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross in every single area every hour every minute every second of every day god is at work bringing about his good plans and purposes for our lives in every single decision every event whether we are conscious of it or not god is guiding us toward our destination including in the bad stuff we do so philippians 1:6 you can be confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carried on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We are at all times passively participating in God's plan to unite all things under the rule of Christ. And yet, God also calls us, his people, to conscious cooperation. In fact, it's precisely because God is sovereignly at work to bring about his perfect plan that his children delight to work to that same end. Uh, Just like when the child is riding the tandem bike with a parent, the parent will get the kid there no matter what. Whether he pedals or not makes no difference. The parent is taking the kid on the bike. But we rightly encourage the kid, in this case that was actually me and one of my kids, to, uh, to do their part and do their pedalling, which lasts for about 10 seconds. But, you know, that's, it's right that they do that. And, the, and often, you know, when they finally find a little burst of energy, they want to do that because that's what we're doing. That's where we're going. You get things, therefore, in the Bible like Philippians 2.12, where you see both of these things working in concert. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, writes Paul, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Or again, same letter, Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, I press on. Notice he's doing the work. I press on to take hold of that for which... Christ Jesus took hold of me, so Jesus is doing the work. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what he's behind and straining toward what is he's I press on toward the goal to win the, favor, uh, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. God is constantly guiding us toward our destination, and he will even use our poor choices and failures as part of that process, and yet... At the same time, he rightly calls on us to consciously cooperate with his plan, which involves getting to know his plan and his person more and more such that we can actively align our thoughts, words and deeds with his. We're learning how to pedal in the direction he's already taking us. So how then do we know what God wants us to be thinking, saying and doing in the day to day? How can we actively seek to follow guidance from God? Well, that brings us to our final point namely the means of his guidance. We all know God is a speaking God. It's the first thing you learn on the first page of your Bible. God is a speaking God. And he communicates with humanity. Being all-powerful, he is absolutely able to speak and communicate in any way he so desires. You might remember the story of Balaam and Balak from the book of Numbers. He spoke through the mouth of a donkey. He can do that. You might remember with Belshazzar, he spoke with writing on the wall in the palace. He can do that. With Gideon, he used that fleece thing when it was dry or whether it had moisture. He can do that. At Mount Sinai, there was the terrifying voice of God as the law was given by Moses. He he can do that. With Elijah, there was the opposite, the still small voice. And he can do that. But what God can do and what he says he will do are two different things. Uh, It so happens that in the past, God has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But then there's a contrast. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and uh, through whom the universe was made. In these last days, God has chosen to speak in a way that is far more supernatural and spectacular than anything he ever did before that. That is through personally coming into the world in human flesh and revealing himself fully and finally as Jesus Jesus spoke of God's written word, the Old Testament scriptures, as all being fulfilled in his person and work. All the message of the prophets looked forward to this one supernatural communicative event of God. He also promised that after his ascension that he would pour out the Holy Spirit who would remind his followers of all that Jesus had said and taught you can read that in an extended section of the bible john's gospel chapter 13 through chapter 17 that same spirit orchestrated the writing of the new testament and incidentally also the old in which the personal work of jesus is made clear and applied to god's people who live in these last days so in hebrews chapter 3 The writer is exhorting a group of new Jewish converts to persevere in their faith and he quotes part of the Old Testament scripture, namely Psalm 95. But he quotes it in such a way as to make it obvious that it is the current word of God understood now perfectly in light of the person and work of Jesus. He says... So then, as the Holy Spirit says, and now he's quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, so it's God speaking, though for 40 years they saw what I did. Notice the writer doesn't think of Psalm 95 as something God was saying when it was first written and first sung, but something that God is currently speaking through His Holy Spirit, it's no surprise that that section of Hebrews, by the way, concludes with the writer saying that the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and penetrating even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus Himself believes that God's written Word speaks to its contemporary hearers. You might remember when the Sadducees tried to justify their denial of the resurrection, Jesus responded to them, and I want you to notice carefully his words, by saying, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection from the dead, have you not read what God said to you? And then he quotes from Exodus. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus sees the written word of God as speaking now to you. And if you were paying attention during uh, Andrew's reading from uh, Psalm 119, you'll have noticed that even the righteous person who lived prior to these last days... In other words, the righteous Israel that lived in the time when God spoke it many times and in various ways, still viewed God's written word as the authority when it comes to guidance. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I might follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I might keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes." All the stuff that's written. When it comes to the means by which God guides, the Bible makes it plain that God speaks to us today by his Son, through his Spirit, in the Scriptures. Regarding Scripture as the means of God's guidance, again, Philip and Tony point out that in my favourite guidance book. This may not seem very mystical or magical. And it therefore might lack some fascination for unspiritual minds, yet it is an extraordinary thing that the living God should speak to us in this way, namely by his Son through the Spirit in the Scriptures. Now, friends, it's at this point that it's very easy for us to make what I think is an all-too-common mistake. We can easily think that, yes, God does speak to us in the Scriptures, but the Bible gives guidance only in a kind of a general way and and only to some parts of our lives. But there are certain decisions, such as, I don't know, who should I marry or what job should I take? What school should I send my kids to? Where should I get my, my house, whatever? And we think that in order to... To find God's guidance for those things, we, we need some kind of revelation beyond what He has given us in the scriptures. Perhaps we need direct words or inner promptings or visions or dreams or feelings of peace or a rock in the shoe, so to speak. Again, from guidance and the voice of God, it's common to hear Christians say things like, I'm waiting for the Lord's teaching, uh, leading, sorry, about that decision as if God has not already given them sufficient guidance and is about to send them some special word or indication. Through the rise of the charismatic movement, Christians all over the world are convinced that they should expect God to impart fresh revelations to them above and beyond scripture and that this should be a normal part of Christian experience. Yet the guidance God gives by his son through his spirit in the scriptures is so amazingly comprehensive and profound that the only reason we could ever end up with such a problem is that we actually fail to take into account just how much guidance God gives for every facet of life that matters from his word. Simple example, I thought of the most mundane thing, right? Driving a car. When it comes to driving a car... What guidance does God give from His scriptures? Here's what I could think of. One, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself quoted in the New Testament. Make sure your tires aren't balding and that your car is safe and registered, otherwise you're being unloving to the other people on the road because you're more likely to cause an accident. Obey the governing authorities, Romans chapter 13, that means no speeding, yes you do have to indicate even when no one else is there because God's the one that's given the governing authorities and it's actually out of deference to him that you do it. Every good gift comes from above, James 1 17, give thanks that you have a car and an ability to drive it. We even have the technology now where some people with Certain ailments and disabilities can still have modifications done in order that they are able to drive. If anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two miles, says Jesus, Matthew 5.14. Be willing to give someone a lift even if it's out of the way. Christians should be known for such things. In your anger, do not sin, Ephesians 4.26. And that's the one that I probably don't need to explain at all when it comes to our driving. You ever notice that a lot of people driving cars, if they're Christians, they have a little fist thing or a cross on it. It's like the one place where you're more likely to be ungodly than anywhere else is the place you advertise you're a Christian. Maybe it should be like get rid of the fish sticker. Colossians three verse eight: filthy language from your lips. There's an easy one. If you suffer... It should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler, 1 Peter 4.15. Now, Ben, why did you bring up if you suffer as a thief or a murderer? Well, you've seen the price of petrol the last few months, right? If ever there was a temptation to fill up and then just drive off without paying and then get, oh, that would be terrible. Suffer the depletion of your bank account rather than suffer as a thief, Here's another one, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Now I listen to the radio when I'm in the car, apparently I'm a dying breed because podcasts are all the rage now and I just haven't got on that bad way, but I listen to the radio. But I've got to tell you guys, sometimes the radio programs that I listen to, or start listening to, they're just filled with this smut and sexual innuendo and filthy stuff and perverse speech and, and sort of really worldly ideas. Turn it off. Change it. Put on something awesome. Put on some dream theatre or I don't know, something. God gives us more guidance in the scriptures about driving a car than I think most of us could keep in our heads at one time. So much so that there's something laughably ungrateful about the Christian who then says, please God, give me a special sign about which lane I should drive in today. Either the scriptures make it clear, and they make it so comprehensively clear, or it doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter in the scriptures, then it doesn't matter. And it's kind of stupid to seek guidance on something that doesn't matter. In fact, apart from his spirit working through the scriptures, God does not promise to use any other means to guide us, nor should we expect him to. In fact, the New Testament is filled with all sorts of warnings against other means that claim to give authoritative guidance from God outside of his word. And the reasons those warnings are there is because God knows that his people are very easily swayed and tempted to seek guidance outside of his spirit-inspired word. For example, Colossians 2.18, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. As such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen, they're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head classic example that I'm going to rip off from uh, the great late Charles Spurgeon, Baptist preacher. He says, suppose that I step down from the pulpit tonight, because it was at night, and I'm walking back home and I'm going through a dark alley and then all of a sudden I'm confronted by a blinding white light and there before me is an angel. And the angel says to me, Mr. Spurgeon, I have a message for you. I, Mr. Spurgeon, look and say, I don't want to hear it. But please, you don't understand. An angel i'm a messenger from god i've got a message Oh, i don't want to hear it well, i have to give this message mr spurgeon it's wonderful well i don't want to hear it but if you've got to say it i suppose you've got to say it. the angel says mr spurgeon your name is written in the lamb's book of life imagine that was you you know how charles spurgeon responds to that be gone you wretch away from me you demon You told me something that the Word of God has already told me, so now that I'm tempted to trust in an angel rather than the revealed Word of God, which tells me, by the way, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, where the Apostle Paul says that if even an angel from heaven should tell you a gospel other than the one that we preach, let them go to hell, Galatians chapter 1. You see the problem, don't you? That's the kind of thing we get in Scripture. How does God guide me? By talking to me. How do I hear his voice? By reading the scriptures. Do they show me the way I should go? They most certainly do. For they teach me how God wants me to live. They rebuke me when I depart from the way. They correct me and show me the way back. They train me in the right way to go. They guide me every step of the way to the great destination that God has for me to be conformed to the image of Jesus and to live in God's glorious presence forever. God can guide in any way he chooses. If God wanted, as a matter of fact, he could decide right now that gravity will temporarily not apply to Ben Pakula and I would float up into the ceiling. Is God capable of that? hundred percent what a wally I'd be if I stood here well God's capable of that so I'm going to wait round. just is he going to do it yet am I going to float I'm expecting and I'm waiting what a ridiculous waste of life he's not promised to ever do something like that now if for some reason he saw fit to do that at some point well who would I be to argue but that's this is ridiculous same thing when it comes to how God guides it by his word now In the negative five minutes I give myself that I've got left, uh, I'm going to take us through one other case study. Instead of uh, driving a car, what about deciding on which church I should attend? Here's a bigger one. The overriding importance of church, gathering with God's people to build them up, should actually affect our decision-making in lots of ways. It should affect our weekly lifestyle if our work and our social patterns are preventing us from actively participating in our congregation, then we have made some wrong decisions. We have chosen to relegate what God considers supremely important, regularly meeting with and therefore loving other Christians, to a position well below what we consider important, maybe success at work or money or a busy social life and fitness or whatever. If we are to give more than lip service to the importance of church, then we need to make some simple yet sometimes hard decisions. At the most basic level, if church happens where I go on a Sunday morning, I ought to decide to get to bed at a decent hour on the Saturday night. The impact of church goes far beyond our daily lifestyle. It should affect where we choose to live and work. I'll say that again. Our church should affect where we choose to live and work. We always get this wrong. Most people make the basic living decisions in the order of, one, find a job, two, find somewhere to live near the job, three, then find a church nearby. But if church is as important as what God speaks about it in the New Testament, then the order should actually be flipped around. Find the right church. Find somewhere to live nearby. And then find a job that allows us to live near the church. Now, I know that life is rarely that simple, okay? There's always there's way more complexity. Uh, there's a number of suitable churches, for example, from which someone can choose if they live in our area. If you find yourselves moving into an area where there is no church, however, that no church that complies with New Testament guidelines, then you may need to question your priorities. What is so important that makes you move? Out of the reach of a good church. Now, is it to plant a new one? Brilliant. Uh, here we are. How many years has Gledswood Hills been going now? Six, seven, yeah, good. Praise God. Uh, but if you're moving because of some other factor, you know, like a better job or a higher standard of housing, you've got to think carefully about, well, am I paying attention to God's priorities, as revealed in his words? In other words, am I being guided by God's word or something else? You see how that thinking kind of works? Now, don't go away. Don't you dare go away from here. Oh, Ben said I have to live close to my church. That is not what I'm saying, all right? I'm showing you how seeing Scripture as the voice of God can impact on something very big as well as something fairly mundane. Uh, Summary for the very last thing. God speaks to us as individuals, but he also addresses us as churches, communities. Speak to your growth group about your big decisions as well. Let me conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are God who speaks in these last days uh, by your Son, through the Spirit, and in the Scriptures. Father, may we be so... uh, uh, happy to be repentant and trusting in you that we follow the guidance you've given in your word correct us father and forgive us our wrongs where we've sought to live your way uh, by not by abiding to to things other than your word and heavenly father thank you for the wonderful assurance that no matter what you will indeed guide us to that great eternity under the lordship of Jesus Uh, we will be with him in paradise it's in Jesus name we pray amen